I am a British American advertising executive. I came to the Pacific Northwest in 1992 on an adventure. At the time, I couldn't put Oregon on a map. I didn't know it had a coastline, and I had no preconceptions about Portland other than it was supposed to be muddy. Now, on this adventure, I've lived in both Portland and Seattle. I've hiked, swam, skied, golfed, and tennised my way around the region. I've learned how to scuba dive and flamenco dance. I've been a runway model and a voiceover artist. I've performed a wedding ceremony. I've worked on big multinational brands and small but equally important local brands. I closed an old agency and I've opened a new one. I've met my life partner. I've met my business partner. I've survived cancer. I've shared my life with five dogs, four of which are still sharing their lives with me. I've found my ideal home on Sovi Island, and I've made the best friends ever. So, as it turns out, I've now lived half my life on this glorious adventure. My name is Rebecca Armstrong, and I'm the principal and managing director at North. Celebrating the work, lives, and achievements of women in Western North America, the Drum presents exceptional women out west. Hosted by the Drum North America editor at large, Doug Zanger. Let's ask three questions. First one: Yeah. What do you think others believe your superpower is, and what would you say your superpower is? Conversely, I actually put this to the test with the agency. Interesting. I, I at great personal risk, asked the question <laughs> of my colleagues here at North what they thought my superpower would be. And a fairly consistent response. Uh, a couple of interesting ones. My favorite being that my superpower is my ability to pull off a fake British accent, <laughs> uh, which I've been doing now for over 24 years. Having grown up in Kent, of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But what was absolutely consistent from the rest of the agency was this idea of economy of words. My ability to edit or my ability to be brief apparently stands out to my colleagues. I have a knack, I guess, of being able to articulate an idea or a thought in as few words as possible without losing its meaning. Um, and that's actually what I was going to say was my superpower. You really? Okay, um, so that, yeah, that all, so that all matched a, up. I was like, oh yeah, I, that's, that's the thing I do. Somebody else articulated it like this. She has an ability to completely control a room toward the needed outcome, no matter who is in it or how the discussion is going. You can seemingly conjure good cop, bad cop, mentor, leader, provocateur, humble guide, referee, stable adult, or moderator at a moment's notice. And so I immediately gave that person a promotion and a raise. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I think, yeah. Having known you for a long time, and I think to caveat our entire conversation, you and I have known each other for a very, very long time. I'm, I'm saying that like it's a bad thing. But it, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead to the, the part of the show, uh, here's where I compliment you. Right. But, I mean, how does that make you feel? that you were able to kind of sync those things up. And it's, it's kind of interesting because you put yourself out there and asked people and you got that back. How'd that make you feel? Well, I should caveat that a little bit, Doug, because, you know, I'm the boss of all these people. Sure, so no, I get that. They're going to be very brave to say something critical <laughs> right. of me right. in a public forum. So, I mean, I'm gratified to know that I'm sufficiently self-aware that my perception syncs with what other people are thinking about me. That's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> What was your biggest loss and how did you deal with it? I kind of going to turn that question on its side a little bit. Sure. Uh, my biggest loss was the back half of 2008 when I was diagnosed with stage two invasive triple negative breast cancer in uh, June of 2008 and then had to go through 
six months of chemotherapy and radiation and a couple of surgeries. And so in my life, I consider uh, it was a great loss of time. It was a loss of self-esteem for a bit, a loss of confidence, a loss of hair. Sure. There was a lot of loss during that period of time. But it was also some things about it that ultimately have been very helpful to me in my life. I learned a lot about myself and, and what it means to be resilient. And I got through it because I had the most amazing team of doctors and because I have incredible relationships with family and friends who helped me get through it because I had wonderful colleagues at work who were really tolerant of my extended absences. Sure. And then the brief moments where I show up looking pale and wan, pretend to do some work, throw up a bit and then have to go home. And ultimately, though, I think actually having a sense of humor really helps you get through that crap. You're good at that. Yeah. <laughs> and what I found really interesting is your perspective on sharing that with people. You were pretty public about it. I was very public about it. I, and uh, it actually helped me to talk through it in a public forum. I used a blog. Mm -hmm. I became a blogger. Right. Uh, you became for, one of them. <laughs> <laughs> for those six months. And, and it, it's, a, it's a whole genre, not just blogging. The cancer blog is a whole genre that I didn't know about. Right. Uh, so there are enthusiastic cancer blogger readers out there. I almost had a, I had a fan base right. uh, excited to read about you know my trials and tribulations and the ups and downs of being a cancer patient, which was very interesting to me. But it kept me focused, just thinking about what to write about every day, and seeing really the bright side of things or the humor side. Do you ever go back to it and, and read what you wrote before? I haven't for a while. I haven't for a while, but you know, from from time to time, I have done. What do you think just, of it when you read it now? I think that I am a very funny person. <laughs> no, I, I would, I, I would, I would tend to agree with that. <laughs> no, I mean, I've, you know, there's been a, a bunch of time between now and when all that went down, and I don't think about it too much anymore. Sure. And sometimes when I do, I do. I, I it's almost like grief. Actually, you have a period. You kind of go back down that rabbit hole a little bit, and sure. I've been known to of late even to sit around and think about it, and then quickly burst into tears, and then. It's worth going back, I suppose, to the blog at that point to kind of remind me about how funny some of the times were as well. Yeah, absolutely. So. What's the most interesting conversation you've had recently? Actually, I'm going to go back to this discussion. About, it's work-related, and it was a really interesting debate about what business-to-business -business advertising should be about. It's right. just top of mind. I was in a three-hour meeting yesterday with 11 bankers Ooh. discussing the, the pros and cons of business-to-business uh, -business communications. And the debate continues to rage and, and this up against 11 bankers, most of whom believed that somehow people in business their mindset changes completely as they cross the threshold of the office. Mm. And once inside the office, they become someone who is only receptive to very dry features and benefits discussions, super rational reasons why making decisions. And it was interesting because I was on the other side of the fence going like, you know, I'm a business owner and I walk in today, every day. And obviously, rational benefits of a purchase decision weigh at some point. Sure. But it's very emotional as well. The whole running your own business is a deeply emotional thing. Oh, no, I failed miserably at it. So yeah. I know. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> You are a failure. Thank you. And uh, every day I try not to be a failure at it. And 
a good percentage of your life is wrapped up in what's going on in the lives of the other people that are around you in a work environment. And it's it's hard not to be emotional. You can't, you know, I'm not Dr. Spock. I, I can't right. cut all that out. And so when it comes to making decisions about what to purchase for my business, I'm going to bring a degree of emotion with that as well. You know, what's going to be best for the people around me? What's going to help make us happier, healthier, um, more creative, more productive employees long term? Now, I don't think it, I managed to convince anybody that I was talking to <laughs> the 11 bankers. They yesterday. are bankers, yes. But, um, the other point, which actually they did start nodding about, is that the technology today has made it very difficult for us to fully escape work at any point in our lives. We bring it home with us. Right. And at that point, we're making decisions about things for our work at the same time as we're making decisions about what to eat for dinner or what to buy our nieces for their 21st birthday. So the context for business decisions is changing, is now super blended with the context for making a personal decision. So ultimately what I was trying to say was, you know, business to business advertising should not be totally dry features and benefits list, basically, that you need to bring a degree of emotion to that too. Let's go to the must list here. What is a must do? One must do one's dues, I think, at mm-hmm. work. I don't want to diss on the whole millennial generation at this point, but I have seen it increasingly that young people come into business and they expect rapid promotion as well as relatively constant flow of praise for sure. what they're doing. Right. And I find myself in situations where I have to say, that will come, but you you have to do the work first. I'm not going to promote you in advance of you doing a better job. I expect to see a better job, and then I will promote you. Right. And of course, it's not everyone. I've got amazing no, this, this, colleagues at listen, North. Listen, there's 45-year-olds that, you yeah. know, that run into that as yeah. well. So, no, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think you can necessarily focus it on just one generation or one group. What I find interesting is that th- there's that side of it, that sort of you know, chest-thumping, I'm awesome. Right. And then there's this polar – there's really no middle ground, at least in my experience, because I've, I've heard interns say you – know, I've gone to places and they say, well, I'm just the intern. And I thought, well – that seems really the word just it's like no you're an intern be proud of that yeah and it sort of feels counterproductive where you've got this one side of the spectrum and then you've got this other side of the spectrum of somebody you know not really confident i mean i think younger people especially can come in with confidence because my guess is is that they know more about this than they realize and it's up to us to bring them along to show them the right way oh i totally agree i think it's in everybody to to aspire to something better and to get the job done, and to not be just the intern, to be proudly the intern. Right. Yeah, there's just a, there's an interesting degree of, of entitlement that that I sometimes have to deal with in the workplace. And quite easily by just saying, look, you, I mean, if you do a great job, you will be rewarded, but you have to roll your sleeves up and do a great job. And the person who gets to decide whether you're doing a great job or not is me. <laughs> right, right. Not you. <laughs> right. No, and I think that paying your dues is, I don't think that's an irrational or unrealistic thing for people to acknowledge. No, we all, I mean, that's, we all that's did what it. we all did it. You know, we Midnight all, to 6 a.m. on the yeah. weekends on a crappy radio station. Yeah. Paid our dues. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've been, you know, doing FedExes at 11 p.m. Sure. Or having to get, I, I got out of bed. I was in bed at 11 p.m. 
and was called by the creative director and had to get out of bed and go back to work and work until 3 a.m. We've been there. (laughs) So that his presentation could come together. Right. Uh, That's just what you have to do. What is a must experience? I think we must experience life. Okay, that's nice and broad. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And what I mean by that is... Especially, well, absolutely in our business, we claim to be able to understand the target audience and what their motivations are. But I believe we should be out there experiencing life in the way our our audiences or our clients' audiences are experiencing life too. So I think there's a tendency in agencies to kind of live in a bubble at some point. I've seen it very much. There's a group of young, smart, motivated people get together and just want to hang out with each other. And that's great. But I think you need to break out of the bubble from time to time and just go see what it is to be a real American. Uh, my colleagues laugh at me, but I actually from time to time enjoy going up to Scapoose and hanging out at the Fred Meyer up there and right. just observing how people shop. And that's real America to me. Right. It's more real than Portland. Yeah, go ahead and uh, search Google or Bing for Scapoose and you'll understand what yeah. we're talking about there. <laughs> <laughs> what is a must read? The news. Right. And again, uh, you wouldn't believe how many people go to Facebook. And I suppose I don't want to diss on Facebook either, but I mean, it is a plausible source of information, but it is somewhat of an echo chamber at some point. What I mean is read what's going on in culture, in politics, in economics, in sport, in everything, and be up to speed on that. Uh, But also read about it or, or watch it or listen to it coming from sources that you wouldn't normally choose to yourself. Right. So... Sure, go ahead and read the New York Times, but you might want to also do that while watching uh, Fox News at the same time. Oh, God help us, but so I understand you, what you're saying. You know, really get the full spectrum of perspectives on what's going on in the world, and that will help you inform the work. What's your favorite thing to read? It, it is the New York Times. Yeah. And I even I understand the New York Times can come from a very biased angle sometimes sure. as well, and sometimes it's like, oh, come on, you guys, right. knock it off. Are you a Sunday hold the paper I do. I am a physically Sunday hold the paper person, but I'll read it on my phone during the week. Sure. I don't subscribe to the. uh, That's not true. I subscribe to the paper copy here at work. Right. But I usually use the paper copy to do the crossword. Um, (laughs) I most often read the daily briefings and scan the news on my phone first thing in the morning. What's a must learn? That's another great question, and I'm sorry to remain on theme, (laughs) but a must-learn is something new every day. It's just to remain culturally uh, and contextually and environmentally and politically curious. I think for us to be able to be at all informed about what we're doing in business, we need to remain genuinely curious and enthusiastic about all the things that are going on around us. And it doesn't have to be huge things. I mean, I'll I'll give you an example. We have a a small group from the UK, me out here in Portland in the Outpost, and then our Asia editor. And we have this little section on Slack called Cultural Learnings. And we all share these little tidbits about where we're from, where we are, what we're doing. And it's just, they're little Cliff Clavin facts. And it opens up everybody's mind. Like, I had no idea. For example, forgot that the Rose Garden here in Portland in World War One, all of these varieties of roses were sent over from Europe because they feared that the war, all of those plants would go away. Right. I, it's just, it's like fascinating. And I completely forgot about that. It's just little things, but yeah, they're a big deal. Yeah. Right. And right outside your door, there can be something fascinating going on. I mean, we do the same thing here at North. Uh, we use Slack as mm-hmm. our internal communication channel. And of course, there are many channels on Slack. Oh, God, um, yes. 
and arguably too many at times. But yep. one of one of them, you know, we we have a you know cultural inspiration channel, we have a music channel, and we have those forums um, which our people can exchange ideas about you know what shows to go to, what thing inspired them, particularly in any given day. Right, and that's great. But I really do encourage people to get outside of the agency as often as possible to go and really experience life, not just talk about it. Because as I keep saying, ultimately. In order to understand the people that we serve, right. we have to live like them. What's a question you've never been asked before that you would love someone to ask you? And what would that answer be? The question that I have never been asked, which is really interesting as a woman in business, nobody's ever asked me, do you lean in? <laughs> and in truth, I'm not sure I've got the best answer to that question. Um, I think it's probably the same as everybody else. Sometimes I lean in and sometimes I don't lean in. There can be too much leaning in. That's a good point. I think it's always important to have a voice at the table. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you have to be commanding the attention of everybody at the table and completely owning the conversation. It's okay to be at the table and listen to what everybody's saying. And, and eventually, once you've understood the context, have a point of view. Uh, right. As long as that point of view is smart, I think considered opinion is much better than just mouthing off. And I think leaning in has been misinterpreted as that from time to time. I would tend to agree with that because the misinterpretation is verbosity over substance. Mm -hmm. And that's a very dangerous place to be for anybody, really. I do absolutely do not believe in saying something just for the sake of saying something. And I see that all the time. I also think you can command respect by not saying anything, by being the great listener and reserving your opinion and be the last person to say the thing actually is most effective. Like the best mic drop, right? <laughs> you know, I've listened to everything. I've heard you all. This is what I think. Boom. There you go. <laughs> Here's where I compliment you. Oi. What does <laughs> oi? Oi. No, bring it, Doug. Yes. Yeah, you, you just gave me the I grew up in Kent thing. Oi. <laughs> Uh, oh, no, you gave me the New York oi. Okay, the, yeah, oi, oi. Yeah, the I'm Schwitzen oi. <laughs> it follows up a bit on just what you said about the question that you've never been asked. Uh, I've known you for a very long time. And, you know, obviously we've covered a lot of your accomplishments, both personally and professionally. You are an incredibly revered leader in Portland. And that is the truth. You are honestly, in every sense of the word, a true leader of the agency community here in Portland. I will say North Star, you're one of the North Stars, and pun was definitely not intended, but it was fortuitous. There are so many things that people can look at and see Rebecca Armstrong, this, 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 all of these amazing accomplishments. But to the point that you mentioned earlier about the mic drop, but it's not necessarily about the mic drop. What I've always appreciated is, look, I'm a, I'm a loud mouth, and you know that, and you've endured me for 15, 20 years of my verbosity. What I've always appreciated is a few things. Number one, your candor. But also the, th the thing that just completely blows me away is how calm you can be and your restraint. And the restraint part of it is something that, and maybe it's because I'm half Italian. I don't know what the <laughs> deal is with that. But restraint is something that I definitely do not have, but you have. And over the years, I've been in some really challenging situations and conversations with you, 
but your calm and your restraint got everything to a level place, which is very, very hard to do. But for you, that is a very natural trait, very natural trait. And I think that that's something that not a lot of people can do. And I just appreciate it like crazy. And that's where I compliment you. (laughs) Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. That's really nice to hear. It's funny that you talk about that, though. It's possibly just British froideur. Sure. My sang froid or whatever. Right. And I've heard it actually and joked about by colleagues both here at North and in the past as well. Like They, they have this joke like, this is Rebecca happy, this is Rebecca sad, and it's all the same face. <laughs> um, it's game face too, because it's not like I'm not... I am feeling angry inside. Oh, no, totally. No, totally. <laughs> or I am passionate oh, about oh, something. Oh, no, you've, you've taken me to the mat a couple of times, <laughs> and I, I know what Rebecca angry is. Yeah, so it's just, I guess, I have a good game face. And that's been helpful as well, to um, diffuse difficult situations and just being the, back from the brink and just say, okay, let's be practical here. Right. Let's find a solution. Right, but practicality and emotion can work in tandem yeah. together. I wish sometimes I could be more kind of Italian and crazy. Oh, no. I wish I could speak Italian, actually. I think it would be very useful to be super angry in Italian. Oh, just be careful what you wish for. (laughs) I just, I don't think I'm going to magically learn Italian anytime soon. (laughs) Maybe. Every guest that we have on the show, we allow them an opportunity for a couple minutes to just talk about whatever they want. So without further ado... The floor is yours. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to ramble a bit about life-work balance, which I think is on a little bit on theme to what I've been sure. talking about so far. The term life-work balance gets talked about a lot nowadays. The pursuit of life-work balance seems to be incredibly important. And it tends to be in the context of that, that work is somehow overwhelming and life separate from work is not easily attained. And I guess part of this is fueled by the national American obsession, in particular American obsession with busyness. It seems to be a point of pride, a point on which to congratulate oneself and other people uh, that you're incredibly busy. And it's like, as as humans, we're not successful if our, our noses aren't to the grindstone day after day after day. And we even congratulate each other on it. You know, how often are you asked, hey, what's up, what's going on? And you would respond, oh, I'm incredibly busy. And I would go, well, that's great, right? And so it's in the zeitgeist. We kind of live to be busy, and then that disrupts our ability to balance our lives. And as I said earlier, technology is facilitating this life-work balance problem. It's very easy just to bring it all home with us. And so you're solving work problems while cooking the dinner and eating the dinner oftentimes. Right. I hear people often... I interview a lot of people and say, why are you looking to move on? Why are you looking for another job? And they say, oh, I, I just need to achieve some life-work balance, which is a problem for me as an interviewer because it's like, what do you say? You're going to say you come here to North and not work much? Is that, is right. that, is that your goal here? But it's also a problem to me in, in that, is, like, is, it, is it because you actually don't like your job? Is this uh, fundamentally, this, we're calling it life-work balance, but aren't we really just saying you don't much care for what you're doing right now? That's really it, right? And I don't mean that, you should enjoy your work so much that you want to do it all the time. That's not what I mean at all. It just means, it just to me, it seems like if you liked your work, you wouldn't mind doing it. You would find ways to accommodate it when it needs to happen. And also, as an employer and for other employers out there, your work environment should be able to accommodate life stuff 
I think the ideal working environment, especially given the advances in technology, should make accommodation for the fact that you might need to pick up your kids who are sick at school during the day, that you might need to get a haircut, that it's kind of slow right now. So why aren't you out there kind of enjoying culture the way other people are doing that? And so it seems to me that the workplace of, of the future should embrace life work or work as part of life, life as part of work, whatever. And then we wouldn't have this struggle of trying to achieve balance. Much like the must list, one last little piece of advice or wisdom to share with the audience to wrap up the show. What is your last word? I did it my way. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Be yourself. Have fun. You know what? Have fun. Life's that, too damn short, isn't it? <laughs> going back to the life-work balance thing, I mean, just enjoy it all. And if you're not enjoying part of it, then change that so you can find enjoyment in it. Because we only have one shot at it. Rebecca, always a great pleasure. Love you dearly. Thank you so much for joining us I on love the show. You too, Doug. Thanks.